You may be seated here in the room. I want to begin with a very simple question. How does God change the world? People often say, or I often say, God is up to something. God is doing something. Well, how do we know? How do we discern that? How does God change the world? And the smart aleck part of your personality might respond any way God chooses to. He's God. I get that. But, but I'm actually going to ask us for a little deeper, more subtle reflection on the question because we're more used to asking, how do we change the world? What do I have to do to change the world? And needless to say, given the state of the world today, there's a lot that all of us would like to change. There are people out there, people here, working really hard to change the world. Um, many are doing so sacrificially and creatively and courageously um, uh, for the betterment of us all. And some, it's kind of hard to determine how it's edifying their attempts at change. Most of us are wary of extreme change too quickly, but all of us want to change the world according to our own desires. So how do we change the world? Well, again, that's not my question. The question is, how does God change the world? I've been a part of a men's group for this particular group for about two years or so, and last summer we took the summer off. This summer there was a core of us that decided, well, let's keep meeting via Zoom on Friday mornings and let's read a book together. So we decided to read a very difficult but really important book that was actually published in 2010 by a Christian um, sociologist of religious life at the University of Virginia. His name is James Davison Hunter. My very own David Barr was a research assistant for him when he was getting his master's at UVA. Well, the name of the book that we read is To Change the World, the Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christian Witness in the Late Modern World. The title itself could not possibly be more relevant to our times as we reflect on Christian witness in a world like ours. So I read this book, and it may be simplistic of me to boil it down to this, but, but what I pull out of the book is that God changes the world working through changed Christians. That's how it happens. One of the provocative parts of the book, however, is Hunter's study and analysis of, you know, the last hundred years or more about how Christians think, how we think that God changes the world, when in fact these that I'm about to list don't change culture, they don't change the world as much as we might think. They certainly don't change it as much as our investment in them might seem to suggest we believe. Winning elections, assuming the seats of power in all the important cultural institutions, uh, winning debates, trying to just change people's minds. If we could just do that, the world would change for the better. And certainly, the change that we all seek doesn't come about because we yell louder in the culture wars. So Hunter comes up with this phrase that's now fairly common parlance, I think, in a lot of Christian speak, faithful presence, that God works change through those who embody faithful presence. And by this, he defines it very, very simply. Faithful presence involves committed Christians at a local level in a congregation 
who covenant with one another that we are going to help each other be better formed as Christians. We're going to learn more and better what it is to be a follower of Jesus. We're going to help each other do that. And number two, out of that, sort of the spillover effect will be we will be more distinctly Christians in all the various spheres of influence out there where we live and move and have our being. So in business, in our social relationships, in our volunteer engagements, friendships with our neighbors, wherever we are rubbing shoulders with others, we'll be more thoughtful that we're Christian in a world that so often is not. So formation together in the church and relational influence out there in the world. Sounds so simple. Sounds so basic. It's not. It's really hard for us. It's really hard for us here at St. George's to embody that. And Hunter says it requires patience and perseverance, and it requires peacemaking, which seems maybe different from so much of the foment and fervor of the immediate moment. Again, it almost sounds bland. Deepened formation here at the local level, commitment to going forth to bless others out there. But it's not bland. It's hard. It's easier for me, at least, to be and say and do things here together with you all in the church than it is for me to do those same things and say those same things out there in my other relationships. If only we would allow Jesus to work more powerfully in us. Well, today, as you heard, we are once again in Paul's letter to the Romans. We've had a number of Sundays this summer where we've heard from this vitally important letter. Today we're in chapter 12, and I just wonder, given these uh, successive Sundays where we've been engaging with Romans, it would be timely just to pull back a little bit and put it all in context. The letter to the Romans of Paul, it comes first in the preserved letters that we have of his in the New Testament for a reason. It comes first because it was regarded very, very early on as the weightiest, not just the longest, but incredibly influential in articulating what the gospel is. And those who compiled the New Testament said this of all his letters needs to come first. I have to believe that he could never have imagined um, the influence down through the generations that his letter to the Romans would have. I'm thinking of St. Augustine in the 4th century, whose conversion experience is tied to an engagement with a passage in Romans. I'm thinking of Martin Luther almost a thousand years later, who sort of hits the whole trajectory of his ministry and therefore the beginnings of the Protestant Reformation come about from his engagement with the letter to the Romans. Paul wrote this probably in the mid-50s A.D. from Corinth, looking ahead to a visit to Rome. So it was kind of, a, in a way, an introductory letter to these churches in Rome that he hoped to visit one day. And indeed, he would go there, although not in the way he supposed. So we're in chapter 12 today, and this is an important uh, transition uh, in the letter because the first 11 chapters, everything up to chapter 12, is a testimony to how God changes the world. That's what it is. How God sets to rights everything that has gone wrong in the world from the very beginning. What God has to do to bring back into relationship to himself sinful, rebellious humanity that now includes this unmerited grace extended to everybody, to the Jews, but also to Gentiles, that is to everybody else 
as well. How? Through the life and the self-offering of Jesus on the cross. And if we believe, if we have faith in what Jesus accomplishes there, then we are, we are brought into his saving work and, and redeemed, saved. We're brought back into relationship to God. We're justified. And not only that, we're brought into relationship like sons and daughters, just like Jesus calls God his Abba, his daddy and father. So now we in Christ are adopted sons and daughters. And again, this is what the entire scriptural narrative up to this point has been leading us to. It's all been pointing to this, and this changes everything. This is how God changes the world. And then we turn the page, and we get to chapter 12, where we were last Sunday and again today. The first word in chapter 12, as we've broken out these chapters, is a conjunction. Grammatical word is a conjunction. Therefore, therefore. So if chapters 1 through 11 are, this is how God has changed the world, if this is the gospel, and now this is your world that you're living in with sort of political divisiveness that we haven't seen in at least a generation or more, COVID-19 goes on and on and on, and racial tensions, if this is the gospel and this is your world, let's bring these two things together. Therefore, what does this mean? And it's been described as this therefore word, kind of as a coupling that, that uh, links a train engine to the passenger cars. You know, and if you don't have that, the engine will just go off on its own, just you know, highfalutin theology with no actual practical application in real life. Therefore, therefore, the gospel means this to your actual life, your actual situation today. And it changes our relationships in three dimensions. It changes our relationship to God. God has changed that for us. We are transformed. And then there are two other sets of relationships that Paul is going to talk about here, give a vision for how we relate to them. Our relationships within the life of the body of the church and then our relationships to the world out there. And the character of all these relationships to God, to one another in the life of the body of Christ and to the world is love. It is love that always seeks to bless. It seeks the interests of the other even over our own. And even when this applies to people who may hate us, who may be regarded as enemies or regard us as such. So firstly, what does it look like to live out this agape love in the church? Paul uses a number of very specific descriptors, very distinctive marks. Our love is genuine. It's real. It's sincere. These aren't just words, sentiments. We have discernment by the gift of the Spirit. We're able to discern what is blessing and what is sin. We have affection for one another. We honor one another in all of our difference. We have a strong commitment to one another that doesn't waver when things get tough or when people irritate us. He says, be ardent in spirit and be patient with one another, be generous with one another, especially those who are lacking and have goodwill. Verses 9 through 13 in Romans 12 are a beautiful vision of all that the church should be and can be in the power of God. But, but Paul immediately goes from there to a different set of relationships, our relationships 
as Christians to those out there in the world, outside the church, including especially, for some reason he wants to name this, those who are persecutors or those who are hostile or enemies of the gospel. How do we deal with them? And Paul here is very, very clear, and he's very, very challenging. We are not, we are not to fight back with the weapons of the enemy, with the tactics of those who oppose or seek even to injure us. It's kind of interesting here because um, Paul seems clearly not just to be echoing teachings from the Hebrew Scriptures, but even pointing back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, which hadn't been written yet. But he knows the teaching. He says, bless those who persecute you. Do not repay evil for evil. Do not seek vengeance upon those who have wronged you. Let God deal with that matter in God's way, in God's own timing. And here's the hardest part. Here's the hardest part, I think, for me in this day and age. Paul exhorts his hearers not to become inflamed with the desire to get even. Not to become inflamed with the desire to justify oneself. And that we are, in fact, just to surrender sometimes. Surrender our rights. I think that would be a good lesson for some of us today. I don't really agree with them. I don't agree with that position. And, uh, and I'd like to make sure they understand why and how they're wrong. And sometimes, maybe especially today, just to surrender in the interests of peace. I want to issue a word of caution here about what Paul is not saying. Paul is not saying, be a victim. Paul is not saying, be a doormat for the world, too easily accepting of the particular social systems or structures. What he is saying, what he is saying is certainly engage the world, but engage as peacemakers. That's his word. Those whose lives reflect the reconciling love of God in Jesus, who did not respond after all to you and to me as enemies, but rather laid down his life for us on the cross. So to be a peacemaker is not to be a wimp. If anybody's read anything of St. Paul's, I don't know how you could ever think that Paul was a wimp. Quite the contrary. But peacemakers, in fact, need to have the courage sometimes to point out what it is that needs to be reconciled in the first place. So to be a peacemaker necessarily involves a kind of encourage, kind of courage to have to engage. And it's easier to talk about that than to do it. But in conclusion, I just want to make two points that I hope are helpful for all of us. First, I am struck. I am struck in these verses we hear today in Romans 12 by the clear linkage that Paul makes between our life together in community and our witness in the world out there. They're two separate sets of relationships, but they are utterly linked in the passage. You move from one to the other. And what I think Paul is saying is that we will never, never be used as the change agents God wants us to be out there if we cannot live together in loving harmony, unity, and peace, and the gospel here. One directly follows the other. That's really important for us. Secondly, and even more important than that, perhaps, is this. 
Everything that Paul is describing in these verses about loving one another with ardent zeal, being patient and generous and sincere and genuine and all of that, and everything he says also about loving our enemies, all of it is a description of Jesus himself and particularly what Jesus accomplishes on the cross. But on the cross, Jesus did not curse those who cursed him. He did not repay us as we deserved. He did not take vengeance on us for crucifying him. He did not allow evil to overcome him, but rather he overcame evil with his own life of love offered for you, offered for me, offered for the world, including offered for anybody out there that you might yourself identify as an enemy. That's right. I am convinced, and this is at the heart of the gospel, that we all will only be united. This is the only way it will happen, except that we are at the foot of the cross together. And that is how God changes the world. So I think a renewal of our ministry right now as Christians in the United States, as Christians here at St. George's, begins in confession, repentance. We are moved too often by causes other than love. We are too often inflamed by fears that are not of the gospel. And we are too often riddled by angers that are not of Jesus. And I am, by nature, an optimistic person, um, and I'm, I'm worried about the coming months, and I worry that some social commentators are right, that um, you know, things could get worse in culture and society before they get better. So here's the question. Here's the question. This is the hopeful question. Given who we are at St. George's Church, one of the strongest Episcopal churches anywhere, given our people and our resources and your spheres of influence out there in the Nashville community and far beyond, given our history, given our leadership, what would have to happen for us to be our very, very best as we've never even yet been before in these coming months that lie before us, where we would see and point, and others would too, God is changing the world. And it's happening through those people there. What if it's the case that the main way that God changes the world through us is not through power, but personal relationships? I think we should be known for and distinguished by more and more and more an obvious life and a lifestyle that respects the dignity of every single human being. Because the issues that we're dealing with, that are laid upon us, that divide us, they're important. I'm not suggesting they're not important. They are important. They need to be engaged. But, but relationships trump issues. Think about your relationships as the landscape, the context where God wants to move and change the world. So in closing, I want to end with a, a brief quotation. I was actually going through some Sunday school notes from about 10 years ago, talking about William Wilberforce, and, you know, the anti-slave um, parliamentarian 
uh, from the 18th century in England. And I came across a quotation by these two Christians named Michael Gerson and Peter Weiner. Listen to these words. The greatest and most powerful Christian distinctive is not the exercise of power. It is the offer of grace. Let me say that again. It is not the exercise of power. It is the offer of grace. Those who believe in a sovereign God should be the least angry, the least anxious, and the least fearful. My friends, let us please, please, please take hope and courage and trust in those words. For our sake, for the sake of this beloved parish, for the sake of the world out there, for the sake of Jesus.